This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number one of the series on the book of Judges which follows the series on the book of Joshua. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while while we read 2 Timothy chapters 1 and 4. It may, be see, it may seem to some that it's rather a strange book to be examining and putting onto the air the book of Judges. And it certainly is no easy book to envisage or a book to speak about. But I have a feeling that it's a wise thing. If there are unknown tracts of scripture, there are some phases of truth for which that book must stand that we shall never know. It's very much like some people who suffer certain complaints because they have a prejudice against certain types of food and never eat them. And this book has been given for our spiritual guidance from beginning to end. On the other hand, I think we must have a sense of proportion. It would take somebody far better equipped than I am to take these 20 odd chapters and give you 20 odd tape recordings. I'm sure that is not what we wish. But I feel we should be very wrong to pass over the book of Judges and go to the book of Ruth, which I want to do to complete this set without giving it a survey. The first thing I think we must do is to consider the book as a whole. It leads off, reads off from the book of Joshua. Joshua was sent by God to take a land that had been given to his people and they were told that the inhabitants were usurpers and they had to be ridded. And we found great difficulty in seeing how God, the God of mercy and the God of love could be the one to dictate such things until we begin to face up to certain other features. We'll look at that in a moment. Another feature that comes out very strongly in the book of Judges is that they temporised. They were kinder than God. They dwelt with the Canaanites. They allowed the Canaanites to dwell with them. And then somebody had a brainwave and they made the Canaanites pay a bit of tribute. And the whole thing went to pieces. And that's what's happening so many times in Christian witness. You remember how the Apostle, in the Acts of the Apostles, when he was saying farewell to the church at Ephesus, he said, I know that after my departure, evil wolves shall enter in, not sparing the flock, and out of their own selves shall arise those who will speak perverse things. And the passage we read just now in 2 Timothy, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, for the time will come where they will not endure. But we haven't got to water down our truth to get our congregation to come. We've got to stand, if needs be, alone rather than porter with the word of God. 2 Thessalonians says that the second coming of Christ will not take place until there be a falling away, or as the word is, an apostasy. And all these things are, uh, on all this uh, harvest, dreadful harvest yet to be reaped, is being sown now. The seeds of departure from God's glorious purpose 
have been sown even in the Christian church by their attitude to God's word and to his purpose and to his Christ and to his gospel. And so, if we think of it from that light, some of the things we come across in this book of Judges may give us a little warning as to what happens when we seek to reinterpret the mind of God to suit our own purposes. First of all, shall we glimpse at the layout of this book? Uh, for it has a, a structure, as you can see, and one or two features come out by seeing that structure and emphasise the great need. As far as I can foresee, we should only be two, three, at the most four studies in the book of Judges. And I promise you that on one of these evenings we shall try to discuss and deal with the great problem of the offering of Jephthah's daughter, which naturally causes a great deal of difficulty in the minds of many of us. I think there's a very clear answer to it, but it has to be done carefully. So will you look now? We're told in the beginning of this, now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord. Well, that's good, isn't it? That's good. They asked the Lord. But if you look at the last verse in the book of Judges, the last verse, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eye. There's the difference. At the beginning they asked the Lord what they should do, how they should behave, what they supposed to do. And at the end, they did what was right in the sight of their own eyes. And if that's right, what they did, well, their right must be desperately wrong. So you see, we've got now an indication of the rapid degeneration from the stand of Joshua. One, one or two generations, and they were just almost like the heathen among them where they dwelt. Will you look at chapter 2 of this book of Judges? And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. This is rehearsing this fact. You want to remember that this military, this great work that was carried out by Joshua, this sacking and burning of cities, was not the work of an aggressor going into a land to capture it. God speaks about this land as a holy land. And he says, it's my land. And he says, I've given it to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and his seed. And then you remember that although Abraham responded to the call to come out of Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land which God would show him, Terah took control. They made a trek of 600 miles to Haran and stayed there, but they were still in the same land worshipping the same gods. And then we are told, and the Canaanite was then in the land. So the Canaanite was, as it were, an anticipation by the evil one to stop, if possible, the purpose of God. This land was the inheritance of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and his seed. And these were usurpers. And if you remember that chapter in Deuteronomy, they had to be turned out in order that the, those who were the true heirs should take possession. Keep that in mind 
when you think about some of the orders that they were given. And then, when you come to get to the end of the story, uh, take for instance the last verse in the prophet Zechariah. You see what it says there about these Canaanites. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 20 and 21. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. Have we any conception, except a very vague one, of what holiness involves and means? When you consider what God did to those who in any measure cast a shadow upon his holiness, the ground opened and swallowed them up like that because of their attitude. We must not apologize for God. We must realize that our God is a consuming fire by the teaching of Scripture apart from the covering work of his Son. And here at last a purpose is reached with what difficulty? In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. Here is where the things become now universal so far as this nation is concerned. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seed therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Now that's one of the nobles of scripture. We are delighted to read in the book of the Revelation, no more death, no more curse, no more sorrow, no more crying. But what about this one? Touching the holiness of God. No more Canaanite. And these people, you see, instead of doing what God told them, they temporized. And as we look at them, sometimes we find that the Canaanite put them under tribute instead and compelled them to go out, and the others came in. And the whole thing was wrecked, and postponed, and bred an attitude that ultimately put Christ upon the cross by the very Jews who were in the land at the time. One of the things we've got to be prepared for is not to try to be so kind that we criticise God. Mistakes have been made over and over again by being too friendly and too kind we have not to be kind. We've got to be faithful first. Whether it hurts us or hurts anybody else is a secondary question. And that's what these people didn't, they couldn't carry out. Of course, we know full well it's so hard. One of our dangers is that when we start being very bold and brave for the truth, we're going to be hard and severe and harsh and swing to the other extreme. But that doesn't justify tinkering or in any measure pandering. So it says here, an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bokim and said, I made you go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. But there was the other side of that. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. No league. Ye shall throw down their altars but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? There's the question. And the more we know from archaeology and its teaching of the abominable things that these Canaanites practiced, the more you realize 
that this was a surgical operation to save the body. If they hadn't, if they had been allowed to continue untouched, it would have been a corruption deeper than it's even reached today. But here we have, in this little land, the whole thing being disrupted and held up. And wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. That's because God said, I've told you to do this and you've been temporizing. Well, this comes back. And instead of being a blessing, it becomes a curse. And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim, that is to do with weeping. And they sacrificed there unto the Lord. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. So that's fine, isn't it? And all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath, here is, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gazer, Gaesh. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord. Almost the same words used of the king of Egypt. There arose another king who knew not Joseph. And here they are. And nor yet the works which he had done for, for the children of Israel. They forsook the God of their fathers which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger and they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And if you don't know what Ashtaroth includes, well, it's including all the sex element that you see in novels and pictures and songs and all the things that are simply corrupting human society today. This worship. And God says that's utterly impossible in a holy land that I've given you. That's the condition, right? That's the position these people were in. The word utterly destroy. You see it there. Uh, chapter 1, verse 17. And Judah went to Simeon his brother and they slew the Canaanites that inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed them. And that sounds so terrible in our ears. Why it should sound terrible in the ears of people who are getting ready to blow not merely cities but whole nations to pieces by these missiles, it's a little bit of hypocrisy, isn't it? But on the other hand, it does sound terrible in a book which is supposed to be a, a book which has to do with God, utterly destroyed. Perhaps it wouldn't do us any harm to realise this particular word, utter destruction. I'll give you the Hebrew word, C-H-A-R-A-M or C-H-A-R-E-M, according to certain circumstances. You can discover it under the two headings, Cherem, C-H-A-R-A-M. I'll give you three references. Micah, the prophet Micah, chapter 4. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, then comes Micah. 
Micah 4, 11 to 13. This particular word, to destroy utterly. Now also many nations are gathered against thee, and say, let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they be his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves of the floor. Now in that particular, in that particular, uh, verse 13, I haven't got to it yet, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thy horn iron, and I will make thy hoofs brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate. Now that's the exact word translated, utterly destroy. It was something that was devoted. You remember the embargo put upon touching anything in Jericho. It was to be utterly destroyed, or the rest of it devoted. And when Achan took a little piece of it and hid it in his tent, then Israel were beaten on the field and they had to have an investigation and that man died. Serious things, you see. So here we have the word, I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. If you look at the book of um, Ezra, chapter 10, verse 8, that is just before the book of the Psalms, Ezra, Nehemiah, Ezra 10, verse 8. We have another usage of this same word translated utter, destroy, utterly destroy. And that whosoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the princes and the elders, all his substance should be forfeited. There again is the word translated to be utterly destroyed. But it isn't quite utterly destroyed in our sense. Consecrated, devoted, forfeited. I'll give you the one other reference where it is translated devoted. Leviticus 27. Leviticus 27 verses 28 and 29. Notwithstanding no devoted thing that a man shall devote unto the Lord of all that he hath, both of man and beast, and of the field of his possession shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy unto the Lord. None devoted, which shall be devoted to men, shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. I don't understand all this to you, but it looks as though here is something which is coming from the God of holiness, and he says, this cannot be spared. It's devoted. It's forfeited. It's consecrated from the other side. It belongs to that which is so desperately evil that there's nothing for it but to destroy it. And you and I have got to be careful lest through a friendliness or a kindliness we allow anything insidious to creep in and destroy the work and witness that God has entrusted to us. Well, now we come back to this, this book again to get a glimpse of its general disposition of subject matter you will see that some things are almost, you may say, trivial. It speaks about the wives being taken in the first, and it speaks about the wives being refused at the end. Whether that is of any significance, only a deeper study will reveal. But the next bit is of importance. Notice chapter 8, where we have this particularly emphasised. Chapter 8. 
verse 18. We're dealing with Gideon now, one of the outstanding uh, judges, Gideon. Then said he unto Ziba and Zalmunna, What manner of men were they whom he slew at Tabor? And they answered, As thou art. So were they. Each one resembled the children of a king. Now that's one of the things I said about Gideon. Resembling the children of a king. And then in verse 22, Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also. I suppose you do remember reading in the newspaper recently that a visit of our queen to the Shah of Persia, that he could not have a proper coronation until he had a son born to him. You know all the difficulty in that court and that family of this question of an heir. Well, you notice how this comes so many times. Here it is. Then the men of Israel said unto Gibeon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also. That gives a certain amount of security in those difficult times, you see, to get a dynasty started. For thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Now that was a wonderful sentiment in those days to refuse that. Now, for some reason, which we might not be able to probe, he makes a little concession. And you'll see the next is an ephod, 24 to 27. And you do know, don't you, that the ephod is the robe of the priest, specially connected with the, the high priest and the uh, breastplate and so on, the ephod. So he wouldn't be a king. But he arranged that they should have some semblance of a priest. Let's go on and see what he did. And Gideon said unto them, I would desire a request of you, that you would give me every man the earrings of his prey. And again, I'm given to understand that this is quite in harmony with the fact that the Midianites that he attacked were those who ostensibly wore a particular kind of earring, it's just not, they don't draw your attention how true the scripture is, but there it is, the earrings. Uh, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. It's telling you the particular tribe of these that were in view. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a garment and did cast therein every man the earrings of his prey. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was a thousand and seven hundred shekels of gold beside ornaments and collars and purple raiment that was on the kings of Midian and beside the chains that were about their camel's neck. And Gideon made an ephod thereof and put it in his city, even in Ophra. And all Israel went thither a whoring after it, which then became a snare unto Gideon and to his house. Poor man. But don't you see, in spite of all that mistake that was made, here was a feeling. We're in difficulties in this land. We've got no Joshua to lead us. There's no king over us. And we haven't got a priest. This is really saying, in the language of the New Testament, even so come Lord Jesus. 
For when he comes, he will be a king priest. And when Israel are restored, they will be a kingdom of priests. And that's the only answer to all the disruption and all the distraction that we've got. Until there's a king who rules externally and a priest who rules within, until there's that royal priesthood and holy nation on the earth that will be a centre radiating to the ends of the earth, as God intends, we'll have the characters over and over again that we find in the book of Judges. Violence, uh, corruption, and all sorts of abominable things. Pleasant subject we're on, aren't we, friends? But this is a portrait sketched by the pen of the Spirit of God of the character that will develop when you turn away from the living God, cease to obey his word, and endeavour to follow out your own inclinations. What an indictment. Every man did that which was right in the sight of his own eyes. And look what the, what the right is all the way through this. Desperately wrong. Now as you come down a bit further to chapter 10 and 17, you'll find in that section they're again seeking someone to be their head. Chapter 9, verse 8. Now this is in the retort made against the Bimelech. Oh, I think we'll have to mention Abimelech then as I've plunged into it. In the middle, we have Abimelech. Now, there are twelve judges in the book of Judges. Twelve. And the names are given at the bottom. So you might as well become acquainted with them. Othniel, Ehud, Shandar, Deborah, Gideon, Tolar, Jair, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon and Samson. Some of them we know. Some of them we're only just acquainted with. And in the middle... Abimelech. Twelve judges and the thirteenth, the false, the anti-Christian in type and shadow. So let's see how he's introduced in chapter 9. And Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem unto his mother's brethren and communed with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, Speak, I pray you, in the ears of all the men of Shechem. Whether is better for you either that all the sons of Jeroboam, which are three score and ten persons, reign over you, or that one reign over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. I've mentioned before in other contexts that in the Old Testament they don't speak so much of flesh and blood. They speak of flesh and bone to indicate kinship, the kinsman redeemer. And his mother's brethren spake of him in the ears of all the men of Shechem, all these words, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. See, he got that over. And they gave him three score and ten pieces of silver out of the house of Baalberith, wherewith Abimelech hired vain and light persons which followed him. You think of the book of the Revelation. And the Lord is riding forth and the armies of heaven followed him clothed in white, for that is the righteousness of saints. Here we got light persons following him. And he went unto his father's house at Ophrah, and slew his brethren, the sons of Jeroboam, being threescore and ten persons upon one stone. Notwithstanding, yet Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together at the house of Milo, and went and made Abimelech king by the plain of the pillar that was in Shechem. 
And when they told it to Jotham, he went and stood in the top of Mount Gerizim, and lifted up his voice and cried and said unto him, Hearken unto me, ye men of Shechem, that God may hearken unto you. And he gives them a parable. The trees went forth on a time to anoint a king over them. And they said unto the olive tree, Reign thou over us. But the olive tree said to them, Should I leave my fatness wherewith by me they honour God and man, and go and be promoted over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, Come thou and reign over us. But the fig tree said unto them, Should I forsake my sweetness and my good fruit, and go to be promoted over the trees? And then said the trees unto the vine, Come thou and reign over us. But the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine, which cheereth God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? Then said all the trees unto the bramble, Come thou and reign over us. He is the bramble. He is the false Christ. He is the antichrist in, in type and shadow. And the bramble said unto the trees, If in truth ye anoint me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow. That's a word which has to do with God. They were told they put their trust in the shadow of Egypt and departed from the living God. Put your trust under my in my shadow. And if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. And so he went on with this parable. And then because he was on the other side of the valley, he got away before they could catch him. That was the way in which they spoke in those days. They spoke by parable. And there are some places of the earth, until very recently, most of their laws, especially inside Africa, were proverbs, not laws. But everybody would quote a proverb, oh, it's not done because this or that or the other. Parable as it's played. Well, now you see, they said, reign over us. We want a king. We want a king. Reign over us. Anybody, rather than be without a ruler. And that's what will come. This poor distracted world is urging, all the countries of the world seem to be urging, that they should unite. They should have one army, one navy, one parliament, one church, one doctrine. My, this place is doomed, friends, when that takes place. There'll be no meetings here. For, what, for when they have a church uh, in that condition, they'll dictate what the doctrine's going to be. And one thing you know, it won't be the doctrine which is according to godliness as found in the book. Still, we won't anticipate that day. We'll go on till they shut the doors, friends. And we come now to this next piece. So I was picking up this 9-8. Now then, in chapter 17-6, that's leaping over a great deal of course, but we're coming back to that again in other studies. 17 and 6. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It's already in the middle of the book, you see, before you get to the end. No king. But in chapter 17 they've already started on the other idea of a priest. So we go back a few verses. There was a man of Mount Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said unto his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from thee, about which thou cursest, and spakest of also in mine ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. What a little bit of 
private tragedy is here, isn't it? His mother suddenly found that she'd been rifled of this uh, deposit somewhere or the other in the house of 1,100 shekels of silver, and she cursed whoever it was that took it. And then he said, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my son, just like so many mothers have done since. And when he had restored the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver unto the Lord from my hand for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now therefore I will restore it unto thee. And he restored the money unto his mother and his mother took two hundred shekels of silver and gave them to the founder who made thereof a graven image and a molten image and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had an house of gods and made an ephod and teraphim and consecrated one of his sons who became a priest. In those days there was no king. You see, and you see where it comes. There it is. Need of a king priest felt. Need of a king priest felt, but all the wrong way to go about it. That's the tragedy, isn't it? Only God and only his son can supply the need. And then we come uh, to the um, concluding part of the chapter, of the book, where we've got some terrible doings. Benjamin, according to chapter 20, had grossly offended his people. And they united together and practically blotted them out. It says in chapter 20, verse 7, Behold ye are all children of Israel, give here your advice and counsel. And all the people arose as one man, saying, We will not any of us go to his tent, neither will any of us turn into his house. But now this shall be the thing which we will do to Gibeon. Gibeah. We will go up by lot against it. And so they did. And there was a terrible massacre. <coughs> and then there was peculiar arguments as to how some of the folks were going to be supplied with wives again to carry on the tribe. But it ends up, you see, in this, this terrific outburst of judgment from one of the tribes, on one of the tribes by the rest. When we meet together at our next study, we should have to leave this large view and concentrate our attention upon other smaller features. One or two other ways in which we must look at the book is to see that here we have a forecast of the way in which the things will head up in the Abimelech side. You see, he's right in the middle, practically. The anti-Christian, false ruler. And until that's disposed of, there can be no peace on earth or goodwill to men. Whether we shall be able to deal with all the, one after the other, these um, judges, one of the peculiar things about them is that they use such very poor instruments, and it may be part of the story, an ox goad. Well, that may be a rather a terrific instrument, but it's rather personal. A barley loaf goes rolling down and causes a panic. You say, well, it's me. Wonder what was the matter with the barley loaf? You wonder why. Or lights hid in pitchers. Never heard of battles being won by that, have we? And then what about the jawbone of an ass? That's asking for somebody to make comments, isn't it? 
peculiar methods were adopted in this book to defeat the enemies of the Lord. Perhaps it was a day of small things that was being indicated and telling us not by might nor by power but by my spirit saith the Lord. If you look at the Septuagint version of the book of Judges you notice that the word is criti which is our word critic. Uh, that is the Greek word for a judge. And you remember it says in the book, in the epistle to the Hebrews, that the word of God is sharp and powerful, sharper than any, quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and is a critic, a judge, a critic, of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And here we have a book which is called The Critics. And it's casting a light upon the disposition of man, what he will do when he begins to take the bit into his own mouth and run without a rein, without a ruler, without a guide. There's a word to us, I think, friends, in the rather sorrowful introduction. All the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that followed Joshua, they followed the Lord. And then there arose a generation who knew not the Lord. And here we get all this tangle. You and I are custodians of truth. Not one of us, but all of us, each one of us separately. Let us see to it that so far as we are concerned, there shall be no betrayal of the trust given to us. The things which thou hast heard of me, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also, is a part of our marching orders. And the days will come when the Apostle warns us that they will not listen to sound doctrine but they will put up teachers who will tickle their itching ears and they shall be turned away from the truth and they shall be turned unto myths why we've seen it happening haven't we there's hardly a, there's hardly a commentary on the Old Testament which is of a modern writing but what you do not mean, read after the first few pages the word myth they shall be turned unto myths and when you know that the word myth is the Ishmael of the family that provides the word mystery, which is the Isaac, the word myth is a part of the same family. And if you won't believe the mystery of God, the chances are you'll believe the myth. I'll leave that with you just as a final word because it was embedded in our 2 Timothy, which we read. We are warned in 2 Timothy that in the closing days there will be perilous times. And the word perilous is a word that's used of the man who was a maniac, who was stripped naked, sitting in a tomb, in a, a graveyard, none could tame it. That's the word God has chosen to tell you of the times that are coming before the end comes. So no wonder he says, put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having worked out all to stand. Stand therefore. I trust that as we go through the remainder of our studies in this book, we shall be impressed with the need for utter and implicit obedience. And then, oh, what a wonderful thought to anticipate, that in this day, when every man did that which was right in the sight of his own eyes, and did such dreadful things, when they were doing that, it was possible for a Moabitess to come over the border into Palestine, and to say those words which you can hardly read without a tear in your voice. 
Where thou goest, I will go. Where thou livest, I will live. Thy God shall be my God. Where thou diest, there will I die, and there will I be buried. Utter, uncompromising faithfulness. A priceless little gem in the very time of the book of Judges. So if we hurry up over Judges, it's only because there's something better waiting for us. And when we get to the book of Ruth, we shall for the moment, I trust, forget the atrocities and all the wickedness with which that little island of light, that gem of truth, is surrounded in the book. So till next time, may the Lord be with us and keep us, meanwhile, faithful and useful.